This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. It is a testament to America's enduring advantages in ingenuity and innovation. That's Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin at the unveiling of the Air Force's B-21 Raider. What we know about the secretive aircraft and how it'll change the future of American air power. And after decades of research, scientists at a federally funded laboratory generated a historic fusion reaction. One of the lead researchers joins us to discuss the breakthrough. Then, in 2022, North Korea set a record year for missile launches, going higher and further than ever before. What the next year could bring for the country's nuclear program. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gerges. On December 2nd, the Pentagon unveiled the B-21 Raider after years of keeping its development a secret. It's the U.S.'s first new bomber aircraft in over 30 years. Retired Air Force Major General Douglas Rayburg is the Executive Vice President of the Air and Space Forces Association. He's also a former B-1 and B-2 bomber pilot. General, welcome to the program. Thank you, Mimi. So, the, a lot of the capabilities of the plane are classified for obvious reasons, but what do we know about improvements over the B-2 bomber? Look at the uh, B-21, this new bomber that just was unveiled, as you mentioned, almost as the second generation of the stealth bomber fleet. Uh, this is not the B-2.1, but rather the B-21 representing the 21st century uh, modification and, and modernization of the bomber itself. It's radically different from the B-2. So what's the timeline? I, I know that it needs to be tested first before it gets out and, and operational. What are we looking at as far as time? I believe right now we're looking for first flight sometime in 2023. But for now, as you know, all good A model starting aircraft have to be ground tested thoroughly before they actually go execute on the first flight. So, and how does that compare to other airplanes that the Air Force has, has put out as far as timeline? I'd say generally that's about the same timeline. It's, it's key to understand that all new aircraft, you have to work through the bugs, as they always say, and especially for an aircraft that's been designed and built in the information age. Well, let's talk about that. Please. The, part of the um, development of this is open architecture. Tell me about that and what benefits that that gives, uh, that gives um, the Air Force. I think the easy analogy for the audience is it's, it's like a Tesla. So while it may be sitting in your garage, the, uh, the manufacturer is actually putting new information into the aircraft so that inside the aircraft, the, uh, the electronics, all the avionics, all the things are actually transforming to make sure that that one aircraft takes off. It's taking off with the most modern softwares. That's what open system architecture alludes to. And it's also that modular piece so that when there's an upgrade, you can just upgrade that one piece and not have to upgrade everything with it. You've just alluded to, in my opinion, the most important part of the B-21. It's designed around the entire new modern team that can actually access the aircraft, 
change as they see and add things to the aircraft uh, that as weapons are modernized, as the aircraft, believe it or not, itself modernizes just the way it was for me as the commander of the B-2. We modernize constantly, even though the outside looked the same. You know, speaking of modernization, the, the B-21 carries conventional as well as nuclear bombs. And, and this is now the first time we're modernizing one leg of the triad. Any significance there? Yes, in fact, this is the great leap forward. And in fact, I think Secretary of Defense uh, uh, Lloyd Austin really pointed out, this is how deterrence is done right. And that is the B-2 was built during the nuclear era, the Cold War, and it really was designed around the nuclear mission. That's not the B-21. This is designed around being conventional as well as nuclear a deterrence platform. So in fact, it's multi-capable and not just for weapons, but air, space, and cyber capabilities. And, and these planes obviously are going to be very expensive to operate, to keep, uh, to sustain. Any thought given to, to the cost? I think the most important entry of the B-21, especially the acquisition process, which I commend the Air Force and Northrop Grumman uh, in what they've done is they adhere to cost, schedule, and performance. That's very important because uh, changing the requirements also adds to the price of the aircraft. That's not the case with the B-21. This is a sterling acquisition uh, for the Air Force and for our nation. So what do we know about where the program will be based and any infrastructure and personnel that are required for this? Obviously, you're going to need to train pilots and, and train all the people to, to sustain the aircraft. I think that's the next beautiful part of the modernization of the B-21. Uh, again, the Secretary of Defense alluded to this. It'll be mainly based uh, where former bomber or current bomber bases are, Rapid City, South Dakota, Ellsworth Air Force Base. Why? Uh, because that's where the infrastructure for the bomber will, will be, uh, both the classified preparation maintenance of the aircraft, the fuel, the weapons, and let's keep in mind, this aircraft is designed global. Strike any target, anywhere, hold every target at risk. I have more to add. Speaking of global, let's talk about Chinese capabilities. How does this stack up against the, the Chinese? Uh, compared to the Chinese, they do not have a comparison. I will say that when this aircraft is fielded, and we should field more of them, uh, it will be designed differently from the B-2 as a mission aircraft. Uh, the B-2, our mission was to, as we always said, kick the, the doors down and kill targets. I know that sounds a little harsh, but the B-21, in my opinion, is designed to kick the door down, go inside, and be a menace. And is this now going to be deterrence like we, we need for the Chinese? That's correct, because the aircraft is not only going to insert itself, but it will also be a, a communication platform for all domain command and control. When I say all domain, air, land, sea, space. It will also be uh, dealing with unmanned systems. You call them drones. Uh, they will also be working with, communicating with, not only the B-21, but the entire strike packages that may be forthcoming. All right, well, we'll see what happens next year when this gets in, into the air and, and operational. Thank you so much, Doug, nice to talk to you. Thank you, Mimi.
straight ahead. One of the researchers who helped generate a nuclear fusion breakthrough for the first time ever joins us to explain how it happened. And what's next? We'll be right back. On December 13th, the Department of Energy announced that the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory generated a fusion reaction that gave off more energy than was needed to create it. It's a breakthrough researchers around the world have been trying to achieve for decades. Brian Spears is the laboratory's deputy modeling lead for inertial confinement fusion. Brian, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Can you give us a simple explanation of what nuclear fusion is and, and why it's such a big deal? Absolutely. Um, in essence, nuclear fusion is the taking of two atomic particles, taking the nuclei of atoms and squeezing them together so hard that they form a new atom and they produce energy in the process. It's so exciting for us because it has the potential to help us understand um, the conditions in our nuclear stockpile, to study giant planets and suns in a laboratory, and also potentially to produce fusion energy with very easily achievable fuels. And how long has your lab been working to achieve this? Oh, well, uh, for me personally, I've been working on it for 18 years, and our laboratory has been conceiving of this for 60. Um, our actual facility that we produce this on has been in operations for just over a decade, so it has actually been a grand challenge and scientific quest. So what happened? I mean, after all these years, why were you successful now? Uh, well, um, Fusion's not easy. Uh, what we do is crush a capsule with fusion fuel inside it to about half the diameter of your hair. Uh, when we do that, it becomes so hot and bright that it is actually uh, brighter than looking at the sun by uh, more than a billion times, and it lasts for about a few hundred trillionths of a second. So the challenges are to understand what's happening in that reaction, see what's going wrong, and help it be confined. Uh, recently, we both added a little more laser energy to give our implosion some oomph. And we also controlled the way that the laser beams enter the whole ROM. The whole ROM is the device that we use to heat it. And that helped us produce a more spherical and symmetric implosion. And those two things, more energy plus a rounder implosion, uh, put us over the edge. So is this something that you're able to replicate? Um, and can it be scaled in a way that it's, it's useful? Uh, yeah, absolutely, we can replicate it. Our experiments at this uh, at this size and this effort happen about once every four to six weeks, and so we will be proceeding full steam ahead with this success. Um, as far as scaling, it's a question of what you want to do with it at some scale. At our current scale, it's very useful for understanding uh, our nation's nuclear stockpile, which is one of our principal missions. Um, many folks are excited about and inspired by the scaling to production of fusion energy. And our current driver does not do that. Our laser is about a half percent efficient. It's designed for science and this first of a kind demonstration that this can actually happen. But there are certainly lots of folks in the world in the, the private sector partnering with uh, government to understand exactly how to do this. So yeah, in the future it will scale. Well, I wanted to ask you that, Brian. I know it's not your, your particular expertise, um, but the idea that this is clean energy and it's not harmful to the environment. 
So how long do you think it, it could take before it could be used for energy and actually impact the climate? Uh, yeah, well, there's an old joke uh, amongst us fusion researchers that uh, fusion power is 30 years away and always will be. Uh, after our demonstration uh, at NIF that we got more energy out than we put in by the laser, I now suspect that um, fusion power is not immediate, but I think in my lifetime I will see that. I certainly think in my children's lifetime there is just much excitement and we could be surprised. So what other, you talked about using lasers, are there other methods that researchers are using to try to create fusion energy? Absolutely. There are, there are two major approaches. One is to heat up and crush the nuclear fuel and then confine it with its own mass that surrounds it in a shell. That's called inertial confinement fusion. And the alternative is to compress and confine it using giant magnets and magnetic fields. That's called magnetic confinement fusion. Uh, both those are directions that we could go forward. The magnetic fusion community uh, has very nice hardware and their engineering is, is substantial and they're still working on demonstrations of the physics. We have demonstrated the physics as a first in the fusion energy community, and now it's up to thinking about the engineering and how you would turn that into a reactor. So both approaches are complementary and are, are great things to have developing in the United States. Well, tell me a little bit more about some of the biggest challenges that you'll be facing when it comes to creating that fusion energy. Um, for, for fusion energy, the, the challenge is to get to something that is really economically viable. So um, we did this once in the laboratory and we do it for scientific purposes, for, for understanding the way that fusion actually occurs. Once every four weeks is not enough. In fact, to be economically viable, you need to do it about 10 times per second. And in fact, you need to get even more energy out than what we put in. So for researchers who are working on that energy production in the future, they'll be focusing on, on two things. One, doing it fast, and two, squeezing even more energy out than what we got in, which is completely possible. We understand from simulation and theory how to do that. So the field is really wide open today. So Brian, you were talking about how you've been working on this for many years personally. I wonder what was the feeling like that the moment that you successfully created fusion power? Um, you know, it's really difficult to put into words. It's something between uh, shock and disbelief. There was a moment of staring at the numbers. We make a lot of neutrons and scientific notation. It's 10 to the 18 or more. And you always worry that you're reading the wrong thing and that maybe it was 10 or 100 times lower. And so I did a double take and looked at it. And then I immediately began letting people know. Um, my particular group and close colleagues were responsible for making numerical simulation predictions of what would happen. And we predicted uh, the week before that this looked like the most likely outcome was that we would get more energy out than what we put in by the laser. And the feeling of just joy and satisfaction at succeeding after 18 years of doing this personally and knowing how many thousands of people had worked on it uh, was just amazing. All right, well, Brian, congratulations and thanks so much for being on the program. Thank you so much. Stay with us. More Government Matters is straight ahead.
North Korea launched at least 65 ballistic missiles in 2022. It's a huge jump from past years. Sue Kim is a policy analyst at the RAND Corporation. Sue, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So remind us of North Korea's current nuclear capabilities. Mm -hmm. Sure. So we let's actually go back to January 2021 uh, when Kim Jong-un laid out uh, some of the key priorities for his countries, uh, the strengthening of their military capabilities. There's a list of items that he was trying to check off. And it appears as though his wish list is actually being um, cleared slowly but surely. And I think we're expecting North Korea to basically check off most of these items by 2026, which is when the next party Congress will be held. So we're talking about hypersonic missiles. We're also talking about spy satellite capabilities that they were um, trying to show this past weekend. Uh, there are questions as to the capabilities of the satellites in terms of military reconnaissance. But I think what we need to stress here is that they're slowly making progress. And what the North Koreans are showing us right now are not necessarily the, the final product um, of the fruits of their labors. And we're probably going to see even greater improvements combined with, I would say, uh, a, a greater will um, for North Korea to continue to provoke. And if and when there is a time to uh, come to negotiations with the United States again, they will be in a much stronger position. Um, add to that also uh, the, the multiple warheads that they're able to put on. The missiles, uh, you know, ICBMs, um, they fired about well, eight ICBMs this year. Well, talking about ICBMs, I mean, at this point, North Korea can hit the United States with a nuclear weapon and really anywhere in the world. Isn't that right? That's what we should be preparing for, I would say. And as Kim Jong-un's sister recently pointed out, they have been testing basically um, ICBMs at lofted trajectories. And what they're trying to show soon, I think, is is the ability to, uh, to, to launch not just from a lofted trajectory, but um, something that's going to be much more uh, less lofted, straight, uh, which is going to extend the distance and, of course, show once again and to remind us uh, that they still have the capabilities and they're also trying to beef them up so that, again, going back to um, dealing with North Korea's nuclear weapons, um, it's going to put us in a much uh, much more difficult position, I would say, in terms of trying to curb Kim's nuclear appetite. Is the stated American policy of, quote, a complete denuclearization of the Korean peninsula ever really going to happen? So I think this is where we need to be cautious and in, in how we're setting either the intermediate or the end goal. If we do set the goal of arms control or tension reduction as the final goal, I think we're just playing into Kim Jong-un's hands. But then there's this argument where um, if we don't start with tension reduction, then where, when or how are we actually going to get to denuclearization of the DPRK? So that's where we are. And I think that there are questions as to whether or not, you know, U.S. South Korea extended deterrence is going to be capable um, of handling North Korea's weapons threats. And of course, uh, the grand question, are we actually settling for something less than denuclearization and are we going to be happy with it? And of course, are we going to be able to deal with the consequences of a nuclear armed North Korea? Combine that with Kim's, I think, growing thirst um, to do something with his nuclear weapons where he's going to be in a position to have the United States, South Korea, the international community accept North Korea as a nuclear weapon state. 
you know, there are some recent polls suggesting that 70% of South Koreans support their country developing nuclear weapons. How significant is that? So I would say that this is pretty significant. Um, I, I, I know that in previous years, uh, there have been polarized, of course, opinions about uh, South Korea going nuclear. But I think the shift now that we're seeing um, does reflect um, a, a greater concern um, and, and greater sensitivities about the nuclear threat from North Korea. And I would also add that um, the threat from China and the ongoing war between Russia and Ukraine is probably also having an effect on how South Koreans are perceiving their national security. Um, previously, they accepted North Korea or, or they, they lived with the North Korean threat um, and they probably took it as just a state of life. Now that they're seeing consequences of a war going on between Moscow and Kiev, um, combine that with Kim Jong-un's uh, strengthened uh, nuclear capabilities, uh, his, his willpower, and he also said that uh, negotiations with the United States are just, it's not going to happen. Uh, that puts South Korea, I think, in a much more difficult and much more precarious position. So do Questions you think, about the alliance? Sorry to cut you off. Do you think South Korea will become a nuclear power eventually? You know, that I think is up to the discussions that are going on between South Korea, the United States, Japan. You know, it's not just talking about the, the security of, of, of one country, but we also have to think about how this is going to bear implications on the regional security and it, it's not to to you know to to advocate for one or one side of the argument or the other but there are going to be consequences to either or and i do think that um, instead of trying to avert discussions about nuclearization or even you know questions about ex uh, expanding extended deterrence there needs to be a robust discussion about the options that are available and also the consequences that are going to fall from each one so that if we do have to deal with these contingencies, we're better prepared. All right, Sue Kim, it's always nice to talk to you. Thanks so much for being on the program. Thank you. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. You can reach us on Twitter at GovMattersTV. Follow us to get the latest updates, reminders, and links to our latest interviews. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. tune for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies 
to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5 because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016 and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services, and we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's going to be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.